Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It has been uh, two weeks since we have been in 1 Thessalonians, and we're picking up in the beginning of chapter 5 this morning and looking at verses 1 through 11. And in this section, we are in the, the, the lengthy section dealing with end-time events, uh, sometimes referred to in theological terms as eschatology, or the study of the end times. And the section began in chapter 4, verse 13, and then finishes in chapter 5, verse 11. But it's interesting to note that this is not the only place that the return of the Lord is mentioned in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, the return of the Lord is something of a major theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's mentioned in 110, 2.19, 3.13, 4.13-18, 5.1-11, and 5.23. So I counted them all up uh, this, this week and did a percentage, so 21 verses out of 89 verses uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So then I took my calculator and said, well, what is the percentage of that, right? So uh, just under one quarter of the book is devoted to matters of, of the Lord's return. So a prominent theme here in, in 1 Thessalonians, and we are right in the middle of, uh, of, of Paul's dealing with this particular topic. So let's, let's read this passage together, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and we'll consider what the Lord has for us this morning. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray together. Father, we're blessed to consider this passage and to have occupying our minds this morning in our study, your return. So help us to set aside distractions and to focus on your will for us in these verses, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. When it comes to the topic of studying the end times, uh, there are often two extremes to which we are tempted. Number one is what we might call a, a preoccupation with end time events, to the extent that believers connect 
everything that happens, every news article, to some sort of uh, return of the Lord, uh, you know, preface. And sometimes you're familiar with ministries or, or places where they're even starting to, to give dates and guess as to when the Lord might return. And they've all been inaccurate to this point, in case you're just wondering, okay? Uh, so, so that is definitely a temptation. We're probably familiar with these kinds of ministries. But there's a second extreme to which believers are tempted, and that is something we call a preoccupation with this life to the extent that any thought concerning Christ's return escapes attention. Now, this temptation is probably the the temptation that's greater for you and for me. Because we become busy with the situations and the events of our life, with with work, with family, with hobbies, with, with other things, and the return of the Lord becomes a distant thought in our day to day life. It's only when we experience some sort of significant trial that maybe we want to get out of or when we think, well, I hope the Lord returns soon or maybe we, we lose a loved one and we're reminded of the fact that, that Christ is coming back, back soon. But, but aside from those events, our attention is, is often away and on other things than the return of the Lord. And ironically, we, we ridicule the, the first extreme, right? The people who are setting dates and who are preoccupied with, with, with all things about prophecy. But we don't bat an eye over, over our extreme of giving so little attention to the return of the Lord. And, and, and we're not grieved by this at all or concerned. But when we study passages like this, and that's what's helpful about passages like this, is that they, they, they cause us to reflect on on the level of anticipation we have for Christ's return. And so it's good for us to come back to these passages and to be reminded of the kinds of things that are going to happen when Christ returns and to set our hope and and, and align our our affections on, on these things. So I want to begin with this question this morning. Do you believe that Christ could return at any moment? And I, I, don't, I don't want to ask the question like, do you know it as a fact in the Bible? But are you convinced in, in, in your own heart that, that Christ could come back at any moment? And is our life oriented in such a way that we're living in anticipation of that day? Do we evangelize and share the good news of Christ with that thought that Christ is coming back? And so as we reflect on this reality this morning, that, that Christ is coming back, and I, I, I hope that this passage encourages us in this way to remember this and to keep this before our eyes so that we live in light of, of this reality. And really, here's what we're going to see in this passage. That the Lord's return is imminent, and in light of this reality, believers are to live godly lives in anticipation of that day. Okay, The Lord's return is imminent. And in light of this reality, believers ought to live godly lives in anticipation of that day. Now, as we move into this study here uh, in this this passage, it's important for us to understand the context. And particularly, I want us to to ask the question, what is the relationship between chapter 5, verses 1 through 11... And the verses that just came prior to it in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And we're going to spend a, a, a decent amount of time 
answering this question this morning because it's, it's helpful to, to understand what's taking place in, in this passage. So the introduction here might be, uh, to this context might be a little bit longer than, than usual. Okay, the previous passage dealt with the events of the rapture. You remember the, the rapture, the idea of it really comes from the Latin word meaning to be caught up, which appears in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And the rapture describes Christ descending from heaven to the clouds, accompanied with the dead in Christ who are, are with him. Their bodies are resurrected first, and then followed by those who are alive and, and, and are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who remain on the earth, they will, they will ascend to meet the Lord in the air with this promise in, in chapter 4, verse 17, that we will always be with the Lord. And this eschatological event is detailed in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. We considered it in our last studies of, of 1 Thessalonians. But our text this morning deals with a related but different end-time event, and that is known as the day of the Lord. You see that appear here in verses two. In verse two, and the day of the Lord, as Paul says here, comes as a thief in the night to those who are unsuspecting, and what comes upon them is sudden destruction at the hand of God. Right. So notice uh, again verses two and three. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. Now, there have been various attempts made to harmonize the rapture and the day of the Lord and to talk about the relationship between chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I'll give, us, I'll give you some, some different views this morning, um, and you'll probably be familiar with some of these terms. Okay, so, so post-tribulationalists, or a post-tribulation rapture, they believe that the church goes through the tribulation before it is raptured to meet Christ in the air. And according to this view, after they meet Christ in the air, they come directly back down to earth for the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So this view, what it does is it closely associates the rapture with the return of the Lord, making them, in, in essence, one particular event, okay, the return of the Lord. But a mid tribulationalist holds that the, the day of the Lord, that, that sudden destruction that comes upon sinful man, they say the day of the Lord comes at the midpoint of the tribulation. And just before the, the day of the Lord comes at the midpoint of the tribulation, that the church is, is raptured to Christ and is saved from the wrath that, that takes place on earth in the day of the Lord in the, in the, the, the great and terrible tribulation. Okay, so that's mid-tribulationalism. The, the third view, and one that I think that the scriptures teach, is, is pre-tribulational, is the pre-tribulational view. And that means that, that teaches that the, the church is raptured pre-tribulation or before the tribulation, and they join Christ in heaven while the day of the Lord is being carried out on sinful man uh, during, the, during the tribulation period. Now, I want to make a few comments about this debate before we go further into, uh, into our discussion. So, first, the debate here between a, a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational rapture, or a post-tribulational rapture, this is what we might call an in-house debate, okay? So it is a debate that exists among well-meaning, God-loving believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that the pre-tribulational position is correct, 
right? So I, I hope, not only because I'm espousing it, but also because we can avoid the, pre, the, the tribulation. And I suppose that any post-tribulational rapture person will not object if God intends to rapture him before the tribulation, okay? So this is an, in, an in-house debate. And it, because it's an in-house debate, that we just need to acknowledge that there are different positions that exist between believers and that this is not a cardinal doctrine of the faith. Okay, if someone believes that the Lord comes at the midpoint, that's, that's not denying a cardinal doctrine of faith or at the end point of the tribulation, but rather uh, it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to understand what the scriptures teach. Now secondly, I want to say and be clear that there is no single passage of Scripture that says explicitly whether the Lord will come before, during, or after the, the tribulation. And so since this is the case, we ought to be gracious with one another. Thirdly, each view believes that the church will be protected by God during the tribulation. Now, for pre-tribulationists and, and mid-tribulationists, they believe that, that, that they'll be protected because they're actually out of the picture But for the post-tribulational view, they say that God will protect the believers during the tribulation just as he protected Israel during the the ten plagues in, in Goshen, that God will carry them through, and God is certainly obviously capable of doing both. Fourth, one would notice this, that the, the differing views arise because believers are trying to harmonize the numerous passages that deal with Christ's return and end-time events. And each view has their questions that they, that they must answer. Okay, so when you're doing, when you're doing theology, uh, you're, you're tasked with the responsibility of tying all that the Bible says on a particular matter to give a, a biblical and, and careful answer. Right, so let me see if I can illustrate it this way. The, if the only verse we had about the person of Jesus Christ was 1 Timothy 2.5, which says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And it says this, the man, Christ Jesus. If that was the only verse that we had about Jesus, then we would assume that Jesus was a man. But it's not the only verse that we have. And so the task of theology is taking all that the Bible says about Jesus and coming up with a a proper and biblical view of who Jesus was. We learned that he was fully God and fully man. Now, when it comes to the study of end times, we have the same responsibility, right? So no one passage answers all the questions about the timing of Christ's return. And so what we have to do is tie all the Scripture passages together to get an answer of of when and how the Lord will return. Now, that being said, I believe that the pre-tribulational position leaves the least amount of questions unanswered. And so if you allow me this morning just to offer two arguments at the beginning for the pre-tribulational uh, position, and then we'll, we'll look at some of them as we go through our passage uh, in, the, in the verses to follow. Okay? There are other arguments so to, the, in, in this passage, but, but these arguments deal specifically with this relationship between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So first, I believe that the pre-tribulational rapture is consistent with Jesus' words in John 14. Now, you don't have to turn there because you're going to be really familiar with this passage in John 14. Right? Jesus tells disciples, do not be troubled. You believe in me. And he says this, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Okay, so what John 14 seems to be teaching here, it seems clear that Jesus is headed to his Father's house, which seems clear that it is, it is heaven. And for the purpose of what? Preparing a place for believers. But then he says he will come back, receive believers unto himself, and take them, what I assume here, not back to earth, but to heaven where he has prepared a place for them. Now, this seems to be very similar to what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Okay, so, so I, it seems to be that, that, uh, that the, what, what the preacher relational position is, is most consistent with John chapter 14 and what Jesus says there. But the second question that the pre-tribulational position answers well is the question of imminency. And by imminency, we mean this, that there is no prophesied event that must take place before the Lord comes to rapture his church. We refer to the fact that the return of the Lord is imminent. And the scriptures are quite clear that the return of the Lord is the next event on the eschatological calendar, right? Because we're told several times that we're to be anticipating Christ's return. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, right? So we're, we're to be anticipating that day. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So nothing has to happen on the prophetic calendar before Christ returns. We said the return of Christ is imminent. The problem with the other rapture views is that you have believers looking for other events before the arrival of, of Christ. Right? So whether it's the rise of Antichrist or whether it's the signing of the treaty that Antichrist does or the breaking of the treaty that, that he does with Israel, if Christ returns after Antichrist has, has, has already risen to power and been revealed, then it's hard to say that, that the return of Christ is, is imminent. Instead, believers might be able to guess the return of Christ based on events that they see unfolding. So a pre-tribulational rapture best answers the question of the imminency of the return of Christ. Now, coming back to this question then, in this context, what is the relationship between chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? So we've got two events mentioned here, the rapture in chapter 4 and the day of the Lord in chapter 5. So what is the relationship between the rapture and the day of the Lord? And the answer is this, that they occur essentially at the same time. Or to say it another way, the rapture inaugurates or kicks off the day of the Lord. So after the rapture, the day of the Lord begins. And this is the only way to understand that both of these events being imminent, right? Because he refers to the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. Okay, so that's an imminent event. The rapture is an imminent event. But if you've got a separation with these things taking place, then you don't have them both being imminent. 
But Paul here is able to address them both in the same context. Now, I want to read from Robert Thomas's commentary because he notes the connection between these two, two events. He says this, Only if the rapture coincides with the beginning of the day of the Lord can both be imminent and the salvation of those in Christ coincide with the coming wrath to the rest. Were either the rapture or the day of the Lord to precede the other, one or the other would cease to be imminent, to which expressions like the thief in the night and other related expressions would be inappropriate. But he goes on to say this, that both are any moment possibilities, both the day of the Lord and the rapture, that both are any moment possibilities, is why Paul can talk about both of these expressions in successive paragraphs. So what we have in these two paragraphs is the church being raptured and the day of the Lord judgment coming to the whole world as a thief in the night in chapter 5, verses 11. They are practically simultaneous events. Now, with these introductory thoughts, uh, let's work into our passage here this morning. Remembering what our lesson we're going to learn here is this, that the Lord's return is imminent, and in light of this reality, believers ought to live godly lives in anticipation on that day. Now, let's look at three things in these passages. Because we've given a lengthier introduction, we won't dig as deeply into these, uh, these 11 verses. But we'll, we'll look at three things here. Number one, we want to see the day of the Lord. Number two, we're going to see the day of the Lord and the unbeliever. And number three, we're going to see the day of the Lord and the believer. Okay, so let's begin by understanding the day of the Lord. So the passage begins with these words in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons. Now you will remember that Jesus used that expression, right? In Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer was, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. It was sort of an official tagline for end-time events, times and seasons. Times, obviously in the name, refers to the timing of these events. Seasons, or or epics, refers to the the signs that will accompany them. So it's not for you to know... The, the, it's not for you to know the times and the, and the, and the, the, the specific details of how they will unfold or, or what I've told you is sufficient, Jesus is saying. Now notice Paul saying, he says, now regarding the times in the season, verse 1, he says this, you have no need to have anything written to you because they had sufficient knowledge already from the Apostle Paul on the, the knowledge of the day of the Lord. Now what you need to notice here in verse 1 is that clearly there's a a related but different event happening in in chapter 5 than what was in chapter 4, right? Because in chapter 4, when he writes about the rapture, he says, I write these things so that you're not uninformed. So the believers needed more instruction about the rapture in chapter 4, but when it comes to the day of the Lord, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you about these things because you yourself are, are, are well informed on these things. Now, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand what the day of the Lord is more specifically. The day of the Lord is an oft-mentioned concept in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. I, I should have calculated a number, but I don't have a number of how many times the day of the Lord or the day or the day of vengeance is mentioned in the Old Testament. 
And the New Testament writers, when they talk about the day of the Lord, their understanding of the day of the Lord is built on the foundation of what the Old Testament prophets said about the day of the Lord. And if you trace the concept of the day of the Lord through both the Old and New Testament, you will find a broad range of of events. So let me just read to you some of the things that, that, that fall under the title of this idea of the day of the Lord. So the seven-year tribulation, uh, or, or Daniel's 70th week, uh, both it falls under the, the category of the day of the Lord. Uh, the first three years especially do, the, the, the first three years do, the, the last three years especially do, when it talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this is, you can find these details in Joel chapter 1, verses 15 through chapter 2, verse 2. In addition to that, uh, the time when believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ is also referred to as the day of the Lord because he says we want to stand blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we live, that's also an aspect of the day of the Lord. Thirdly, the battle of Armageddon at the close of the tribulation is part of the day of the Lord. The establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth, according to Zechariah 14, verse 9, is part of the day of the Lord as well. And then when, when, when the heavens and earth are dissolved and the new heaven and the new earth come, as Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, that's also an aspect of the day of the Lord. So I mention these various aspects of the day of the Lord to show us that the day cannot be limited to, to one single event, but rather the day of the Lord encompasses a large picture of the end times. So that we might define the day of the Lord in this way, that it is a day when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy their enemies, and establish his kingdom. Okay, so let me say that again. The day of the Lord is a day when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy their enemies, and establish his kingdom. And that day begins, I think, at the rapture of the church here in chapter 4. Now, a significant day of the Lord, or significant aspect of the day of the Lord, is that there will be severe judgment. Severe judgment on mankind for their sins. And that's where we want to go next, because the day of the Lord means different things for different people. For believers, the day of the Lord means one thing. But for unbelievers, the day of the Lord means something different. So let's go secondly to the day of the Lord and the unbeliever. The day of the Lord and the unbeliever. So you'll notice as you read through this passage, there's a sharp contrast between believers and unbelievers. So notice some of the expressions that Paul uses. He refers to to people. He refers to them. He refers to others. Instead of referring to we, us, brothers. Okay, there's a contrast here, right? So verse 3, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security. In verse 4, he says, sudden destruction will come upon them. In verse 6, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do. So unbelievers experience the day of the Lord in an entirely different way than believers experience the day of the Lord. So notice this first. The day of the Lord for unbelievers comes suddenly and unexpectedly. The analogy that he uses here is that it comes, and he says, as a thief in the night. And a thief does not announce his arrival. He doesn't give you a warning that he's going to, 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 to rob you. The only 
The only individuals I've ever, the only thieves I've ever seen announced that they're going to, to rob you would be Harry and Marv from Home Alone. All right, so those are the only thieves that, that give their warning ahead of time. And they're never even very successful thieves, right? So, but, but the day of the Lord is, is the analogy here is, is a thief in the night. There, there's, there's no warning or, or expectation of this. And actually, these believers will, or these unbelievers will think that things are going quite well. Because notice what they're saying in this passage. They're saying there is peace and there is security. And then the day will overtake them like birth pains before labor. Now, this is how an unbelieving world largely looks at life today. Things are going as they should. There's peace, there's security, there's happiness. I live life to the fullest. I pursue my own desires. And the Lord's return will surprise them. So the day of the Lord is for them, it's sudden and unexpected. But also notice that the day of the Lord for them means sudden destruction. Since since Genesis 3, mankind has lived in rebellion against God. But there will come a time when the, the sins of man have reached their fill and the Lord will come in vengeance against the sinfulness of mankind. And this includes the tribulation, but it especially references the great tribulation or the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Right? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 describes it this way. There will, be a, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The Bible actually says more about the great tribulation than any other prophetic event in all of the scriptures. So Matthew 24 devotes much attention to it. Revelation 6 through 19 is, is entirely devoted to the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the purpose of this event will be to, for God to pour out his punishment and judgment on a, a sinful, rebellious mankind. And also to chasten and bring to salvation his people Israel. And the day will be characterized by fire and by death, and by polluted water, and darkness, and demons, and and the sea becoming blood, and drought, and earthquakes. And the warning in in Matthew 24 is, is if if you're in Jerusalem, run for the hills. And hopefully that it doesn't happen in winter, because you want your journey to be quick. And if you're pregnant, well, there's pity and fear. Now notice the statement, the sobering statement at the end of verse 3 about the day of the Lord and the unbeliever, it says, and they will not escape. The destruction is certain. Now allow me to pause here for a second and say this. That this day is is real and it is approaching. And if we're convinced of the reality of this day, that it will change the way we think about the world around us. Like Jesus will be moved with compassion for, for sheep without a shepherd. See, we, need, we must let the unbelieving world around us know that things are not okay. That there is not peace and security, but that God's judgment is coming and is coming swiftly and harshly and it will be inescapable. Because like an unbelieving world, they... They stand as an ostrich with their head in the sand. 
and they have no idea that a charging rhino is coming their way. And the Lord has given you and me the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ that offers hope in the face of judgment, hope in the face of, of darkness. And if we are convinced that this day is coming and that it is sudden and certain for an unbelieving world, then, friends, that ought to compel us for the glory of God to share the good news with those around us so that they see the light in the midst of their darkness. Now, let's move thirdly, then, to the day of the Lord and the believer. The day of the Lord and the believer. There are essentially three things about the day of the Lord and the believer that are mentioned in this passage. So come back to the passage. Let's read these again. In verse 4, he says, after he, he talks about the sudden destruction that's inescapable in, in the first three verses, he says in verse 4, but you, okay, now he's back to talking to, about believers, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for salvation of the hope of salvation. Okay, so now in these verses, he essentially says, three things, but in the verse that we read, he says two things about the believer and this day. Okay, see, first, he says that this day will not surprise you like a thief, right? You saw that in verse four, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you as a thief, okay? So we we know that this day is coming, and while we might be surprised at the exact time that it comes, in general, we will not be surprised because we know that the Lord is, is coming, it's not going to overtake us in judgment like is, is mentioned for unbelievers. But the second thing we see in this passage is that, that for, for the believer, the day of the Lord means that there are moral obligations for you and for me. Right? So, so in verse 6, he says this again. He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the moral obligation that we have here is alertness and watchfulness for the return of Christ. That there is to be an, an anticipation on the part of you and, and me. Okay, so he says don't sleep. And, and sleep in this passage is, is really characterizing those who are, who are, who are unaware and, and unawake to the fact of, of spiritual realities. And we're not to act like those people who are unaware to spiritual realities, but we are to be in tune with spiritual realities and the knowledge the Lord could return. The second thing he says in this passage is that we are to be sober. Right? Two times he says this in verses 6 and verse 8. Verse 6 he says, Do not let, let us keep awake and be sober. In verse 8 he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And, and really the idea here is, is self-control in control of our own faculties, alert and awake to the fact that Christ is, is, is coming. Okay? We're not to give ourselves to the pattern of sin that an unbelieving world gives themselves to who have no idea of, of Christ's return, but rather we are to walk in obedience in light of the fact that that day is, is coming. The third thing he says here is that we are to be equipped with spiritual armor. 
In verse 8, he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, we're to be equipped and stand fast to, to walk in righteousness and to fight sin and to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Okay, so, so the return of the Lord, first, means that it will not surprise us for the believer. Secondly, for the believer, there's a moral obligation in light of this day. But thirdly, I want you to notice that for, for the believer, in the relationship to the day of the Lord, that they are not destined for the judgment of the day of the Lord. Now, we read down to verse 8, but look back again at verses 9 and 10. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, here we have one of the clearest statements in Scripture, assuring and comforting the believer that they will not be present during the judgment of the day of the Lord. Now, for those who think that that believers are present on the earth during the tribulation, they will say that this passage, verses 9 and 10, refers to eternal wrath, that God has not destined us for the eternal wrath of, of hell, but he's given us salvation. But I think it's better to see in this context That when Paul says that that God has not destined us for wrath, what he has in mind for wrath goes back to the sudden destruction that comes upon unbelievers at the day of the Lord. Okay, So you're not destined for wrath because he's going to rapture the church before the wrath of God is is revealed on an unbelieving world. Okay, So now notice the context, right? So in verse number 8, Paul is talking about putting on the breastplate of, 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 uh, what is it? faith and love, and then the helmet, he says this, which is the hope of salvation. So he's talking about eschatological things here, the hope that we have of a future salvation. And then the term wrath here, as I said, should be identified with the sudden destruction that, that, that unbelievers face. So he says, you are not destined for the wrath that is coming in the day of the Lord, but rather you will be removed from that. And then he, he, he says this at the end of verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And he's tying that passage back to chapter 4 where, with the assurance that when Christ comes to rapture us, we will be with the Lord. Now, if this isn't clear, just go back to chapter 1 and verse 10 because we see an even more, uh, more clear passage in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And notice what he says here in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Well, should back up to verse 9. And he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice he says here in verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, and then what does he say here? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Which I believe, and I think most, uh, most, uh, many commentators do, that this is a reference to the wrath of the day of the Lord that is coming on unbelievers. So we're waiting for the Lord to return. And when he returns, he will rapture believers so that they are saved from the wrath of the Lord to come. You know, it's interesting. There's no scripture passage that tells the believer to embrace for the great tribulation. We're to embrace for tribulations and trials and difficulties. But there's no passage that warns believers of living of the danger 
of facing the great tribulation. So note Paul's point is this. You're not bound for that day, so don't live like you're bound for that day. Okay, you've got moral obligations to live in obedience. You are not going to face a destruction, so, so live in righteousness. Now, let's take all of this and let's bring it to a conclusion in verse 11. Notice how the Apostle Paul finishes, finishes these, these words in, in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the Lord's coming, so encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So in light of everything he's just said, here are the responsibilities that believers have to one another in light of the Lord's return. We are to encourage and we're to build one another up. Now, I think there's a slight difference between these two ideas here, encouraging, building up. Some translations, the, the word here is comfort one another. Okay? And what, the difference is this. Okay, there, there are some that need comfort and encouragement at this time and need to be reminded of the coming of the Lord. So for some, you might be in the midst of a significant hardship or trial, the recent loss of a loved one, the, the struggling or the, 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 the ongoing struggle of having lost that loved one. And what you need is to be encouraged by the fact that the Lord is coming back to deliver his church and to bring you home in a reuniting with him and our loved ones. We need that comfort. Just as he mentioned at the end of, of chapter 4 and verse 18, that we are, we're to comfort one another with this hope. But there are others who need a different type of admonition. They need to be built up. And what the idea here, I think, means is there are some who are probably giving themselves to the sins of those who walk in darkness. And what you need to hear is this. Come on. Christ is coming. We don't have time to be walking in the sins of darkness, but we need to be living as children of the light and get busy about the responsibilities that he has given us. Right? So some people need the, the encouragement and the hope of, of, come on, press on, we're going to get through this, Christ is coming. And others need, hey man, let's sober up. Let's build one another up because Christ is turning, it's coming. Let's stop wasting time and get busy about the duties God has given us. Now this morning, I don't know which one of these admonitions you need, whether it's, whether it's the encouragement in the midst of hopelessness or whether it's a reminder to, 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 to set aside sin and pursue righteousness in light of Christ's recoming, return. But in either case, this passage is a helpful reminder that the Lord's return is imminent. And in light of this reality, we are to live godly lives as we wait for his return. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Because as we said, we're so prone to, to be preoccupied with this life. Lord, let us be convinced of, of your coming. And let, it, let us be so convinced that it, that it impacts the way we think about our possessions, the way we think about our time, the way we think about our relationship to unbelievers, May the anticipation of your coming change 
every aspect of our life. So that we're no longer people who just give ourselves to earthly pleasures, but we're people who desire to live for you and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us, Lord, to be changed by this passage.